Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Are you feeling overwhelmed at work, trying to find a job, but can't seem to get your foot in the door? Have you been knocking your head against a problem over and over again, but haven't made any headway on it? My guest today says you can solve most of those issues by simply asking for help. His name is Wayne Baker. He's a sociologist, consultant, and the author of the book, All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. We begin our conversation discussing what the research says are the benefits of asking for help and why people are nevertheless so reluctant to do it. Wayne then provides insights on how to overcome those obstacles in asking for help, the best way to formulate an ask so it actually gets a response, and how to handle rejection. We then turn to Wayne's research on how organizations can benefit from creating a culture of help-seeking and what you can do within the organization you belong to to foster such a culture. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash ask. All right. Wayne Baker, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Glad to be here. Got a new book out. All you have to do is ask how to master the most important skill for success. So what got you thinking and writing about the benefits of asking for help in your career and life? Well, I have an origin story that goes back 21 years when Cheryl Baker and I created the Reciprocity Ring Activity. It's a group or team level activity in which people can ask for and give help to one another. And back then, when we started using this activity, I thought that getting people to give, to help, that that was going to be the problem. And so I'd always start out with a little lecture on generosity and the importance of giving and helping. But I soon discovered that that was rarely, if ever, the problem. What I discovered is that the main barrier to generosity is not that people are unwilling or unable to help, but that most people don't ask for what they need. And people are really quite reluctant to do that. So I had the shift and I had to focus on, well, what are the reasons why it's hard to ask? What is the benefit of asking? And then what kind of tools can one use to ask? And what got you started with the whole reciprocity ring? Like what was in your, what were you looking at that you thought that was needed? Well, I'm a, a sociologist by training and I teach in a business school and my specialty is social networks, in particular network analysis. And I would teach my MBA students how to analyze their networks, how to interpret them, to think about the strengths and the weaknesses. But I didn't really have a lot to tell them about what to do. In fact, I remember a a pivotal conversation I had with Cheryl when she said, you know, you teach your students how to analyze their networks. What do you tell them to do? And I said, well, I have a couple of stories and some anecdotes. And basically, I'm waiting for the bell to ring and run out of time because I don't have a lot. And that started a conversation about social capital. You think about human capital is that's what you know, your skills, your experiences, your knowledge. Social capital is your network, informal, formal, personal, and professional. And I said, well, you know, teach people how to analyze their networks, but that's only half of social capital. The other is this principle that we call generalized reciprocity. Uh, what that means is, you know, I help you and you help me. That's direct reciprocity, and that's great. We would want that to happen. Generalized reciprocity is bigger than that. It's like you help me, I feel grateful, and I pay it forward, and I help a third person who helps a fourth person, and then eventually it all comes back around to us again. And so the reciprocity ring creates that form of generalized reciprocity. People get to make a request. In fact, that's that's the ticket of admission. They have to make a request, but they spend most of their time helping other people. And what they discover is that the people they help are not the people that they receive help from. It's that more indirect or generalized form of reciprocity. Well, before we get into the benefits of asking for help, you talked about what I thought the surprising thing from your your reciprocity ring is that more people were willing to give 
as opposed to receive. So like what what are what keeps people from asking for help, whether it's in their career or just life in general? Well, there's a lot of things that get in the way, a lot of obstacles or barriers. A common one is that people are concerned or they fear that they'll appear to be incompetent or weak, ignorant, can't do their job, not educated, whatever. You know, they fear that they'll be perceived to be simply incompetent. But here the research can be really helpful for updating that. What we've learned through research is that as long as you make a thoughtful request, people are more likely to think that you're competent and less likely to think that you're incompetent. It's how you make the request, why you're making the request. That's what really matters. A thoughtful request will increase perceptions of your competence. So that's one. Another common barrier is that we don't ask because we assume that no one can help us. Uh, The research here is helpful as well. There have been a number of interesting studies that have shown that, in fact, even strangers are very likely to help. In fact, most people want to help and most people will help if they can. The problem is getting people to ask. And, and some another, you know, sort of block that keeps people from asking for help is like some people, sometimes people don't feel like they earn the privilege to ask for help. Like you, they feel like they got to do something first before they can, like there's a score they have to meet before they can ask. Yeah, that's another common barrier. What I always prescribe is, is this. Okay, well, then go out and give help people. Earn the privilege of asking. It's important to do both. In fact, I think the the best place to be as an individual, as a team, or an organization is what I call the giver requester. That's where you freely and generously help other people. You don't keep track of who helps you. It's not about tit-for-tat exchange. And you ask for help when you need it. As long as you're doing both, that's the best place to be, both individually as a team and even as an, an entire organization. And one that you talk about too, that keeps people, it's like psychological, but you highlight research. We just mentioned research that that's not true is that people feel like if they ask, like they're imposing on other people, like that they don't want to impose, they don't want to be a burden. It feels uncomfortable to say that they need something from somebody. That's right. In fact, it's important to realize is that most people do want to help. You know, it feels good to help. It creates kind of a warm glow. It creates positive emotions in us to help other people. I actually think that as humans, we are hardwired to give and get help from one another. So we talked about what keeps us from asking for help, but what are the benefits from help seeking? What happens when we get over those blocks and start asking for help? Well, oftentimes you can be much more productive, efficient, and creative by asking for input and resources from other people. And the research is very clear that you will perform at a higher level if you're both asking for and giving help. So that's one. If you look at at the team level, we see the same thing, is that teams are much more effective, much more creative, perform at a higher level if people can freely ask for and give help to one another inside the team, and they develop good external networks where they can ask for help from resources outside the team. And are there any examples, anecdotes from your research and just from your experience with working with people where they hit a problem and they, they thought there was no solution to this? but they never thought to ask for help. And then when they finally did, it was like the thing that just instantaneously solved the problem. Well, it's interesting. I just got an email from someone who had finished reading my book right before they had to go in to have a meeting with a a client who was a president of a very, very large company. And they had to make a request about implementing a company-wide program. And 
because they used the method in the book and they thought to the criteria for making an effective request, they were able to have the meeting, make the request to get it responded to affirmatively, and they're now working out all the next steps. But I bet that person before they read the book thought, you know, I don't know if I should really ask for this, but they were empowered to do so. And they also learned how to make a thoughtful request. That part's really important as well. And besides just furthering your goals and and, and advancing your career goals or your, your life goals, like asking for help can also just alleviate a lot of stress. I mean, one thing you hear over and over again, people at work are feeling burnt out, they're feeling overstretched, uh, stressed out. And oftentimes if they just ask for help, that could help with that. Absolutely. You know, the most common type we see is what I call the overly generous giver. That's a person who freely helps other people, but doesn't ask for what they need. And they often experience burnout. They might go so far as actually compromising their ability to follow through on their commitments. And my prescription there is, well, balance it. You want to put boundaries around your generosity so you don't burn out, you don't overextend your resources, and you need to ask for help. And when people do that, they find that work becomes less stressful as a result. So you've developed this idea to try to figure out where you are in this asking, receiving continuum. So the way what you're saying here, it's not, it's like giving and receiving are part of a continuum. It's part of a cycle. It shouldn't just be seen as either or. It's something that's going on all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. You know, it's giving and receiving is a cycle. You can't have giving without receiving, and you can't have receiving without giving, and nothing happens until a request is made. The request is the driver or the catalyst of that process. And you lay out in a chapter called The Law of Giving and Receiving that you can break down askers and givers into like four categories. And you mentioned one, the overly generous giver. These are people who just give freely all the time. And I think Adam Grant, he did in his book, Give and Take, he talks about those people, like the most generous people are often the most successful, but they're also the most unsuccessful in their career. And I think that the reason they're unsuccessful is because they overextend themselves. They overextend themselves and they don't ask for what they need. And, and so, okay, you don't want to be an overly generous giver. Like what are the other types of givers and givers and takers? Well, the opposite of the overly generous giver is the selfish taker. So that's the person who has no problem asking and makes requests all the time, but they're not helpful. They don't give. They don't reciprocate. And what the research shows is that over time, their performance declines because people see what they're doing and they're much less likely to respond to them. Um, I had a friend who uh, used to work at IBM Consulting. And when I explained this, these categories or these types to him, he said, oh yeah, the selfish taker, we called them a sponge. You know, they just sucked in everything and they never gave a drop back. So that's two, the overly generous giver and the opposite, the selfish taker. A third type is what I call the lone wolf or the isolate. Now, in some ways, that's the most tragic position to be in because you've just hit your head down, focusing on your work. You don't give, you don't ask. And it's tragic because that person is just disconnected from, you know, the ongoing activity and network around them. The best place to be is the giver requester. That's the fourth type. And in our assessments, we found that about maybe 15% of people are giver requesters. Most people fall in the category of the overly generous giver, followed by the lone wolf. And we do see some selfish takers every now and then, but often not in the extreme. And I guess to, to shift your way, shift from the overly generous giver to a, a giver requester, like you have to get over those like the, those social or psychological blocks in your head that that tells you it's not okay to ask but just remind yourself about the research that, no, it's okay to, for you to ask. It actually makes you look competent and people are ready and willing to help you. 
Yes, and I think you can go even further and say it's a requirement to ask is that, you know, without asking all the resources, all the answers are just sitting out there. So you can imagine in an organization where people don't ask for what they need, just think of all the resources that are wasted, that are unused, that are just sitting out there dormant. The only way they they get activated is when people make a request. No, I mean, you can see that in your personal life too, right? Like there's a, oftentimes a lot of problems interpersonally. No one ever actually says, hey, can you stop doing that? Or, hey, this, because they're afraid. But once the, once they do, the other person says like, well, I didn't know that was an issue. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. I think a, a team leader or an organizational leader has a responsibility there to recognize and even reward people who will stand up and ask for what they need. Oftentimes, the systems are geared towards rewarding those who help. And that's important. You want to do that. But I think you need to reward the other side as well, those who ask. And we'll talk a little bit more about how you can incentivize for that. But let's say someone's overcome those psychological and social barriers for asking for help. So they're going to make the ask, though. But how can people mess up asking for help? Is there like a wrong way and right way to do this? A wrong way would be to rush to a request and assume that you know who to ask. I think preparation is really the key to make a thoughtful request. So it begins with the goal. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? What are you trying to achieve? And then once you have that, you say, okay, well, what's a resource that I need that will help me to achieve or at least make progress on achieving that goal? And to think widely and broadly. So it could be advice, information, ideas, opportunities, a a brainstorming session, a referral, a connection, financial resources, political sponsorship, the list goes on and on. But once you've got the goal, what you're trying to accomplish, and you think about what's the resource that I need, then the next step is to make what I call a smart request. And the smart request, there's five criteria for a smart request, but these are different from smart goals. So the first, the S, is specific. You want to ask for something very specific. And that has to do with the way in which the human memory works is that people are more likely to remember who they know and what they know when they hear a specific request than a general one. Oftentimes, people think it's just the opposite. Uh, In fact, the most general request I ever heard was from an executive from the Netherlands who said, my request is for information. That was it. And so I said, well, can you elaborate? And he said, no, it's confidential. Can't say anything more. (laughs) Well, yeah, so he, he got no help. Right? How could anyone help with that request? He actually was quite generous. He helped other people, but he didn't get any help himself. So the M, and this is different from the M for SMART goals, which is measurable, and measurability is nice, but here M is meaningful. It's the why of the request. Why will this request help you to be better able to get your job done at work? How does it help your boss uh, meet his or her goals? How does it align with the organization's objectives. That's very important, often left out, but it's important to explain the why, the meaningful part of the request. The A is for action. You're asking for something to be done. The R is strategically realistic. Now, I always encourage people to make stretch requests, to make big requests, but it has to be within the realm of possibility. And the T is time, a deadline. Much more likely to get a response if you actually have a deadline for it. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. No, I thought this, I thought the activity you have, this, you kind of lay out sort of a, a worksheet for people to go through to figure out what exactly 
they need to ask for help for. I think that's a, a big problem people have is like, okay, they don't even know what, what they need help with. And so they do what that business guy said and just says, I need information, which is you can't do anything with that. And then after you figure out what you want, the smart thing is really helpful. In my experience, whenever people have requested you know, help from me, whenever they get very specific, I'm like, I can do that. And whenever they come to me with like a vague issue, I find myself having to spend more time trying to help them figure out what their problem is. And mm-hmm. then I just don't have the time for that. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't have time for this. That's right. That's right. Okay. So let's say someone's made their their smart request. They got that all laid out. I mean, I think what a lot of th- times people too worry about is how, like the tactics of it. How do you make the ask so that it's effective? So I'm talking about like timing on when you should make the ask, make the request, things like that. What does the research say about that? Well, I think figuring out who to ask is the last part of the process. And there are different ways of thinking about it. So one is, you know, maybe you know that you have to go to your boss and it's, it's that clear. And if that's the case, then you would want to be sensitive to the form of communication the boss wants. You know, some people prefer email, some like a text, some like a face to face meeting. I remember I used to work at a consulting firm and my boss was always too busy to meet, but I discovered that the best time to make a request was when he was leaving work and going down in the elevator. And I would watch for him to get into the elevator and I would jump in at the same time. And for the few minutes we had going down to the first floor, I had his undivided attention. So that's what worked for him. I had to adapt to his particular style. It's important to realize, you know, what is the person working? Are they under a really strict deadline? Are they, you know, working all kinds of late hours? Maybe you need to wait on the timing of your request. So it's the form of communication, it's the timing. You need to be sensitive to that. But you know, that's kind of the category, what I call the usual suspects, you know, your boss, a coworker, family, friends. I think it's important to realize that you can tap a much broader swath of your network. So one method that I advocate is called the two-step or the two-degree method, which is that, you know, I may not know who the expert is, but I know who to ask who knows who the expert is. So I have a colleague of mine who runs a uh, an innovatrium for innovators and entrepreneurs, and he said that he keeps track of this. He said he used that two-step method 180 times in one year and had really remarkable success in doing that. And he said, you know, we could figure out who to ask to get to the person we want. So that's another way to think about it. A third is to think about your dormant connections. So a dormant connection is a relationship that you had in the past, but your lives have gone in different directions. Now, many times we'd be very reluctant to try to reactivate a dormant connection when we need to make a request. But here again, the research can be really helpful. It says that most of your dormant connections are delighted to hear from you. And they like that the connection has been reactivated and they're willing to help. And because their lives have gone in different directions, that means what they know and who they know is really different from what you know and who you know, so they could be even more valuable sources of help. And then finally, you could crowdsource. You could think about a group that you could broadcast a request to. You know, sometimes you could do that on LinkedIn or Facebook. Maybe there's a company intranet. There's all sorts of messaging apps, many different platforms that you could use to broadcast a request to a group. And take advantage of that six degrees of separation. That's right. That's right. I've really found that, you know, I've, so we developed a platform that's called Givitas. Givitas is a combination of giving and Civitas for community. And it's a digital platform and it's based on the principles in the book. 
And we have some very large communities, thousands of people, many of whom are strangers. And I just see day after day, people make requests for some really difficult things and they get help from all over. Uh, in fact, I used Givitas when I was writing my book and I needed, say, a fresh example, you know, a different way of thinking about something. I would post a request in some of these Givitas communities and I connect with so many wonderful people all around the country that I would not have ever connected with and got amazing help from them. In fact, I tried to uh, acknowledge all those people in the acknowledgments for the book. And the, the first line of my acknowledgments is that I asked a lot of people for help with this book. And I have to say, it's a lot better because of the generosity of other people. Well, you gave an example of you know crowdsourcing help. One of your personal life where you got you and your wife tickets to the Emerald Show, the, the cook show, mm-hmm. a long time ago. And you just said, hey, can anyone help me out here? And they, they, they helped out. Yeah, that was absolutely amazing. That was a number of years ago. We were coming up on a milestone anniversary. And I had occasion to use some of these ask and giving activities with all of our incoming MBA students. So you can imagine about 450 students. And we have this orientation program and we put up these big tents uh, for the students and the faculty will come in on jumbotrons. So you're being broadcast to all these different groups of students. And I made that request because my wife and I were really big fans of Emerald Lagasse. We always wanted to be on a show Emerald Live. That's virtually impossible. We had tried to get tickets for years. We never were able to get on. And so I made that request, but you know, it was because it was a smart request. It wasn't one of those, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be on? Those requests don't get much help because they're not really serious. You know, they knew what a milestone anniversary was like. They were either married themselves or they remember their parents' important anniversaries. You know, and I made it, I said, this is a gift that my wife would really like, and I'd like to surprise her with this. And so I used the spark criteria. And I think that's the reason why I got so much help. And I have to say, even now thinking about it, I was still amazed. I had six people came forward. Somebody knew somebody who was dating Emerald's daughter. That's true. It's also true that that one didn't work out because they broke up. But there was a connection that did work out. And we were in New York City for a recording that turned out to be Valentine's Day. So I didn't know that before we were on the show, which couldn't have been more perfect for an anniversary. And, And I'm sure these people felt good that they were able to help you. And they wouldn't have been able to feel good helping you unless you asked. That's right. They wouldn't have known that I had that need unless I asked. I mean, we're not mind readers. We're not telepathic. And so the only way someone can help you is if you ask. So I think another thing that keeps people from asking is the fear of rejection. So let's say they do all this stuff. They get the smart requests. They think about the purpose, the meaning behind it, and they make the ask. And then it's no. Like, How do you handle rejection? It does happen from time to time. In fact, recently someone made a request of me on LinkedIn and I had to say no, but I explained why and gave some feedback as to why I said no. So hopefully it was a, it was a learning opportunity. And I think that's the best way to take a no. You know, a no is information. A no is not a rejection of you. It's information about your request. You know, perhaps if you follow up with, okay, well, why you might learn that the person actually would like to help, but it's bad timing or they're having a bad day or they're just not the right person to ask. You might get some information that will help you to refine the request so that when you ask it again of someone else, it'll be a better, more thoughtful request. And it's important to realize that a request is never a demand. Requesting is a privilege and that you're making a request and it might be rejected and not to be deterred by that rejection. Learn from the rejection. 
All right, so the rest of the book. So then you talk about setting the smart requests, thinking about how you're asking, being not only, but also thinking about not just asking, but also you know being a asker giver. So you're giving as well. But then the rest of the book, you talk about how businesses or organizations can create a culture of help seeking. And we mentioned some things earlier, but let's still dig deeper into that. What happens? to an organization when they develop a culture of health seeking. I mean, I'm sure in your work, you've gone into organizations where there was none of that. They're probably all lone wolves, but then they started implementing some of the things that you researched about what happens to those organizations. But what happens is that the teams and the organization itself become much more efficient, more creative, profitability increases, performance increases. I'll give you an example. So one of the many tools I write about is called the daily standup. The daily standup is very common in IT and software development firms, and I think it has widespread application. And it's very simple. Everyone stands in a circle uh, at the same time, say 10 a.m. every morning, stands in a circle, and every person has to address three things. Here's what I worked on yesterday. Here's what I'm working on today. And here's the help that I need. And then it goes to the next person. And so the help is given after the standup is done. But you can imagine doing that. It becomes psychologically safer when you know that everyone's in the same boat, everyone's going to make a request. It's a lot easier when you know that everyone is going to make a request and it's not just you. In fact, it becomes a norm. It makes it routine, expected to make requests. In fact, not doing so is letting the group down. Now, I recently spoke with the leadership staff at the Wharton School, and they said that after reading about the daily standup, that they had started that practice themselves, but they added a fourth item, which I think was just brilliant, which was, what have I learned? And it could be something you learned about work, something you learn listening to the radio on the way to work, whatever it might be. And because they want to be a learning organization, and I thought that was a brilliant extension of that idea. They were adapting it to their particular needs and, and their situation. But that, that's just one of many. But you can imagine people are doing that is that it really starts to connect the need with the resources. So it becomes much more efficient that you get the answer, you get the resources that you need. So let's say you've got a big organization and it's divided into silos. That just seems to be part of human nature. But here there are tools that can help as well. Some are low-tech, some are high-tech. So a low-tech is one that I learned from a, a senior director at one of the large automakers who was in charge of two different divisions. One was racing and the other was advanced engineering. So if you think about that, racing, they're trying to fix the car week to week to get it back into the next race. So very short time horizon, extreme pressure. The other group, advanced engineering, you know, they're thinking of technologies that may not see the light of day for five or 10 years. So very, very different time horizons. But he said, you know, I think these two groups could learn from one another. And so he created something called a cross-collaboration workshop, and I talk about this in the book, where he got the engineers from both groups to get together. It was like for two or three hours, let the engineers set the agenda, what they wanted to talk about, but they started sharing, here's what we're working on, here are the problems we're running into. And you know, the advanced engineer group got a little bit faster, more efficient because they learned some techniques from the racing group. And the racing group got some new ideas to think about how they can make that race car a little bit faster. So that's low tech. A high tech would be to use any of the digital platforms that are available. I already mentioned Givitas as one, which we've seen just naturally breaks down the silos because you're broadcasting your request to people in many silos, sometimes all around the world. And you know, you never know where the help is going to be, but it is out there somewhere, but you have to ask. 
And so, you know, part of this creating a norm of asking, you'd mentioned, referenced earlier that some organizations actually incentivize help seeking. What does that look like? If you want people to do something, you want to recognize it and you want to reward it. So it could be informal or formal. So an informal might be the team leader or the boss, the CEO will acknowledge people who made a request. It could be as simple as, you know, thank you for asking. That was really important. And you're going to get a resource. You're going to get some help here. And we'll, we'll learn from that. You know, what it's basically do is saying is that asking is important to do. And we're going to recognize that informally. You could also recognize it formally by making it part of someone's performance feedback and evaluation. Oftentimes helping is a part of it, but the other should be included as well, which is the asking part. People who are making requests because that's, we know that both of those are really important. You know, and there's a, there's a variety of ways you can do it, but it's like thinking about it both formally and informally. One of the worst things a leader can do would be to criticize someone who made a request. Unfortunately, I've seen that a couple of times where there are teams and organizations using these tools, making great strides. And then for some reason, a leader says, Oh, you know, you shouldn't have made that request. You should have figured that out on your own. And even if that were true, you wouldn't want to say that because it will just stifle the whole activity. And that happens from time to time. So the leader plays a really important role in being willing to acknowledge and recognize and even reward the people who request. You you gave an example from your own personal experience of of a leader disincentivizing someone asking, I guess there was a professor, you had a question about statistics. You went to this guy, professor, and he's really condescending towards you like, well, anyone should know this and here's this book and you basically stopped going to him and then you found another professor that was actually more helpful. Yeah, that's right. That was early on in my career when I was an assistant professor and you know, and every now and then I would run into a data analysis problem that I didn't know how to solve. Maybe it was some you know, new statistical routine or procedure that I didn't really know and I know a fair amount about of statistics but I'm not a world-class expert. And so Maybe naively, I looked up the expert on a particular uh, type of analysis and I approached that person and it was just what you described. The person was very condescending. Now he looked at me and said, you know, I thought everyone learned that in graduate school. So he's dissing my, my graduate education. And he said, well, here's the answer. And what happened is that I got the answer, but I was so de-energized that I really couldn't work on the project for, for a couple of days. I was really deflated by the whole experience. But, you know, maybe I thought, okay, maybe maybe he was just having a bad day. So the next time I had a question, I went to him again. It was the same thing. And this time, he actually pulled a big statistics book off of his bookshelf, tossed it to me, and he said, well, you know, everyone knows it's in this book, so uh, you'll find it. It's in there. After that, I said, okay, I'm not going to that person again. And, you know, but there were a lot of experts at the university, and so I just found someone else. And his approach, no matter what I said, was just the opposite, was so positive. He said, well, that's a very interesting question, and here's why. And it wasn't interesting to him, but it wasn't, he said, he approached it that way, said, here's why that's an interesting question, and here's how we can solve it. And so I went back to this person a couple of times, and it was always the same. We actually developed a relationship. At one point, I proposed a collaboration, research collaboration, and we ended up co-authoring an academic publication in you know one of the top journals. And it all can be traced back to me being willing to ask and someone being receptive to the asking. It all goes back to the law of giving and receiving. Exactly. 
Well, let's say we've been talking about what you know organizations can do. Let's say you're a freelancer or you, you're a small business owner and you work by yourself and you're not embedded in an organization like that. How can you use these ideas to help with your business? Well, I think it's very important for the freelancer or someone in the gig economy to join groups. And they could be digital groups or they could be face-to-face groups. So I know here in Ann Arbor, there's a meetup every month of people who are interested in positive organizations. And that's an ideal place to go because it's uh, people from, you know, all different companies, all different industries, many small business owners or entrepreneurs that are working alone. And here they have a community of like-minded people and they feel safe to ask for and to give help to one another. So you can look for a, maybe it's your local incubator, maybe if there's a university nearby, sometimes there are these groups that you can join I would say that I have a three-part mantra that says, join, give, ask, you know, find a group and join it, find an opportunity to give and to help, and then make a request when you need it. Now, that's true for a face-to-face community, like the meetup group I just described, also true for a digital community. And these days, there is a digital community for anything. And you just have to find your group. Maybe it's a LinkedIn group or, or something else. And to become a member of that really, really expands your network. Well, Wayne, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, I've enjoyed this conversation, Brett. Thank you. You can learn more about the book by going to the book website, and it's the booktitle.com. So all you have to do is ask.com. Fantastic. Well, Wayne Baker, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Brett. I've enjoyed it. My guest today was Wayne Baker. He's the author of the book, All You Have to Do is Ask. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about the book at his website, All You Have to Do is Ask. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash ask, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into the topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles rewritten over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout, get a free month trial once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider Consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. 